Colossians 3, 16 to 19. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What do I say? This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Now, uh, if you've ever gone to counseling before, you'll know that the way it always starts is you go in with a presenting issue, uh, but that's never really why you're there. The, The counselor just kind of pokes and prods around at you until somewhere in the first five sessions or so, they hit that one spot that unravels you. And it's at that point that you discover why you're really there. So it's, it's kind of like you show up because you're dealing with chronic anxiety, and then you discover that you're actually there to discuss your father wounds. It's that kind of thing. So I started meeting, this was several years ago when I was pastoring a church in New York, I started meeting with this old, wise pastor who had become a counselor that I really admired and wanted to be able to sit down with. And my presenting issue was that I was a young pastor in my 20s dealing with a series of difficult church transitions. And so in the early days, we talked about that. We talked about church structures and staff leadership and preaching and congregation and all that stuff. And it was helpful. And then about three weeks in, This one day, right in the middle of one of those sessions, we're sitting at this Thai restaurant, and this guy looks across, just like drops his fork, stops eating his pad thai, and says, Tyler, I don't really want to talk about being a pastor anymore. I'm not worried about that. You're going to be just fine. I want to talk about you. And I will spare you the long version, but just to say that over the next couple of years, this guy went on to uncover these knotted up parts in my inner world that I could not see for myself. And I think the best summary that I've ever received comes from the opening of Brennan Manning's book, Ruthless Trust, when he talks about this one encounter that he had with his spiritual director when he was sitting in a counseling session and, and just in a passing comment, his spiritual director said, Brennan, you don't need any more insights into the faith. You've got enough insights to last you 300 years. The most urgent need in your life is to trust what you already believe. And that's what I realized as a young man trying desperately to gain more insights from someone that I thought was a sage that could give me insights that would lead me further into the journey. I discovered that my most urgent need was not another insight. I've got enough insights to last me several lifetimes right now. And that has nothing to do with my intellect and just everything to do with my bias toward pursuing further insight. The most urgent need in my life is to trust what I already believe. And that brings us to Peter. So today marks the beginning of a new teaching series and practice. It's going to carry us over the next 10 weeks. It's titled, The True and False Self, Filled with All the Fullness of God. Uh, That's what we've titled. It's not an original title to us. We've stolen it right from this beautiful prayer from the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus that Jenny read for us a moment ago. In that prayer, we'll find themes like the love of God and the self that he's recreating in me, but also that stingy false self that I can't just shake as easily as I'd like, and the reality of a spiritual enemy that's sowing lies into my consciousness, and healing from traumas from my past that were inflicted by others, and then turning into a person of love facing outward to the world. So those are the themes that we're going to be hitting in the 10 weeks ahead. But if I were to sum up the whole of this teaching series into a single phrase, it would be this, from belief to knowledge. I'm hoping that'll make more sense here in a few minutes. The, The Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung was once asked if he believed in God, and he famously responded, I don't believe in God. I know God. And that's what today and that's what this entire teaching series is about. It's about moving from belief to knowledge. 
And that's a journey seen vividly in the life of Peter. So Jesus' most outspoken disciple is gonna serve as something of a proxy for us today. A follower of Jesus who does have a real and unique story that is entirely his own, but it's also one of those stories that we can find ourselves in if we look closely. Even the twists and turns in his story that we would rather not find ourselves in. So I wanna take you through the whole of Peter's life as a disciple of Jesus today in five crucial scenes, calling, believing, participating, failing, and then knowing. You ready? All right, scene one, calling. Now most of us think that Jesus' disciples, including Peter, had a a definitive single encounter with Jesus, uh, and then they never looked back. But that's not exactly how it played out. Let's begin in John chapter one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. Now let me give you some backstory context that will catch you up to this moment quickly. Simon, or Peter as he's later to be called, we're gonna get there in just a second, but Peter is a Jew. And at this time in history, that would have meant at least two things. The first would have meant that Peter would have grown up studying the Torah and the prophets, or what we now call the Old Testament, and would have studied them intently. Now the primary theme of the whole of the Old Testament is this, that God will send a Messiah, a savior, who will establish a kingdom that will never end. Secondly, we know that historically, uh, between the end of the Old Testament, the last prophecy from Malachi, and the beginning of the New Testament, or the opening of the Gospel of Matthew, there's a period of time called the intertestamental period. That's the time in between, from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New. Chronologically, or historically, the intertestamental period lasted 400 years. 400 years. That's 400 years of silence from God, 400 years of of where the promise of a savior who's coming into the world to establish a never-ending kingdom is building and building and building like a swell that is nearing the ocean shore and then just 400 years of silence. No signs, no prophets, no miracles, no deliverance. Have you ever waited on God for something? for an answer to prayer or for some type of provision or healing or help? How long did you wait with expectation before that expectation was ground down into something passive or even turned to doubt? I mean, how long did it take for you to lose expectation or hope? Now, we're talking about 400 years of waiting. That's roughly 10 generations based on the life expectancy of this time. The last person who actually heard a, a living promise of the coming Messiah from the mouth of a prophet would have been Peter's great, 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 great grandfather. It's been a long time. Now, I think it's pretty safe to assume that Peter, to Peter, the Messiah, would have been half belief and half urban legend. Uh, Like, sure, he might have believed that God really would send a Messiah into the world, but he probably didn't live with a palpable sense of hope that he would personally interact with and be caught up in the story of that messianic kingdom. Let's keep going. Back to John 1. And he brought him, meaning Peter, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas which when translated is Peter. Now immediately nicknaming someone is a weird way to get to know a guy at any time in history. (laughs) But this is an ancient Hebrew culture and there was so much significance that was tied into a name. Uh, Name would have been synonymous with authority. That is why the Bible in ancient Hebrew texts instructs us to worship the name of the Lord and not take the name of the Lord in vain and to pray in Jesus' name. It says that he has hidden a new name for us in the kingdom to come when it's fully realized on the earth because name conveys authority. You should think of it less like a name and more like, uh, uh, or I would say less like how a name functions in the modern world and more like how a resume functions. And that analogy breaks down quickly if you press it too far, but I think it's the closest thing we've got because your name in ancient Hebrew culture did not just represent what you were called. It represented your class and opportunity and vocation and ultimate call in the world. It was a summary of your whole person. 
And Jesus calls Simon Cephas in Aramaic or Petros in Greek, meaning rock. So Jesus, first meeting Peter with no prior context, no invitation, just presumes to speak over this man a new identity, a new vocation, a new call, a new self. But he does not invite Peter to follow him. He does not call him to be his disciple. Not yet anyway. Now Simon Peter, a blue-collar fisherman, would have then returned to his fishing post with this memorable first encounter on his mind. Chronologically speaking, the next time that Peter shows up is in Matthew chapter 4. And this is that really well-known moment where Jesus is on an afternoon seaside stroll and happens to see Simon and James and John and Andrew all by the boat. And he, he says, come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Or Now is when Jesus calls Peter to follow him. He did not call him the first time. This time he does. Peter drops his nets and follows Jesus. Why? Because Peter's had his name changed. He's had a significant encounter with Jesus. He's been intrigued. He's wondering, could this really be the Messiah after all? So this is the day that Peter drops his nets and becomes a follower of Jesus. And the rest is history. He, he becomes the, the rock that the church is built on. He preaches the sermon at Pentecost. He is the de facto leader of the early church and in the worst caricatures of heaven, he's holding the keys at the gate, investigating everyone when they get there, right? <laughs> That's the story. That's what most of us tend to think. Peter's name's been changed, now his life will be changed and he follows Jesus forever. That sounds awesome. The only problem is that that's not the story. Not even close. And this dropping your nets moment turned out to be a very short-lived breakthrough. Scene two, believing. Luke chapter five. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now where is Peter in this moment when the Messiah is preaching? He must be right at the front of the crowd, right? Sitting on the front row, taking notes, drinking in everything that he can from this new Messiah. No. See, Peter's left Jesus. He's gone back to fishing. He's returned to his old life, to his old identity, to the one that he made without any help from the Savior. He initially was intrigued by Jesus for sure. He did really drop his nets and really begin to follow Jesus, but at some point he's drifted back to his old self. Now most scholars will estimate that about four months have passed between the encounter in Matthew when he dropped his nets and this moment in Luke chapter five when Jesus comes to his boat and finds him in his, his old place again. What that means is that somewhere in those four months, Peter had gone from initial intrigue and inspiration of following Jesus to drifting back into his old life, to discovering that for some reason and somehow discipleship to this rabbi was not all that he had dreamed it up to be when he dropped those nuts in the first place. Peter's gone back to fishing. He was intrigued, but at some point the inspiration wore off. It was a religious phase that he had gone through. He's gone back to fishing and Jesus comes after him again. Continuing Luke 5, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've been working hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their other partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. So here's where Peter drops his nets for good. Here's where Peter becomes a disciple. And it's interesting to note that this time around, Jesus doesn't even call Peter to follow him. Peter just takes the initiative all on his own. He drops his nets with no invitation from the rabbi and becomes his disciple. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. He's repeating that first call from four months ago verbatim here. So they pulled their boats up to the shore, left everything, and followed him. Now, do you realize what's happening here? This is a significant moment. Peter's had a mystical encounter with a man claiming to be the Messiah, had his name changed, and then gone back to fishing. 
Peter's then called to follow Jesus, and he's intrigued enough to leave behind the life he's built for himself, but eventually loses interest and goes back to fishing. Peter keeps going back to fishing. Why? Because fishing is Peter's sense of identity and security and provision apart from God. It is the identity that he's constructed, the self that he feels safe within. Fishing is, this is what I know, this is what I can control, this is where I feel comfortable and secure and like I'm enough apart from God. You see, Peter returns to fishing to the identity that he's built, not to the name that he was given, to the place he feels sure of himself, not to the uncertainty of trusting someone else for his ultimate provision, and to the world he controls, where he can provide for himself, not in dependence on another. Put out into the deep water. Let your nets down for a catch. What is that? That's Jesus speaking Peter's language to say, you can trust me. I will provide for everything you need. This is the place that you are most sure of yourself and you've been out here all night and haven't caught a single thing. I can fill your nets to the point of tearing any second I want. Stop holding to what you can control and trust me. And I find this part of Peter's story so comforting personally that he gives us a realistic picture of how faith and commitment is often born in fits, starts, restarts, a moment of breakthrough, then a retreat in fear, and a God who keeps coming after us. Scene three, participating. Now here's where all the gospel narratives begin to overlap right on top of each other. Peter becomes a participant in the ministry of Jesus. He's overseeing the prayer ministry at the close of all of Jesus' sermons. He's explaining what's happening to a mother while Jesus is healing her blind son. He's collecting the leftovers at the end of the feeding of the 5,000 and standing shoulder to shoulder with Jesus at the leper colony. He's stepping out of the boat to walk with Jesus on the water. You see, Peter's experiencing what the world of spiritual formation commonly calls the productive stage of discipleship. When our spirituality is run primarily by doing, by activity, by personal participation. What's the next mountain to climb? What's the next hurdle to get over? What's the next project to tackle? What's the next thing God is calling me to do? Our sense of growth when we're in the productive stage of discipleship, which is a stage all of us pass through again and again and again on the journey, is that we channel most of our energy into church activity and family life and career. We busy ourselves with kingdom activity. But it's not an overwhelming kind of busyness. It's a life-giving kind of busyness. It's uh, something we feel completely alive in. You see, when you're in the productive stage, you tend to think that it's the destination of the spiritual journey, that you've arrived. Like, Jesus brought me on this rich journey of twists and turns, and now I'm bearing fruit here in his kingdom. Amazing! The rest of my life is going to be lived right here, but it's not. We eventually leave the productive stage, but never by choice. We only leave this stage by crisis, or what feels like crisis at first, but is always an invitation to deepening in the end. So there's this one moment in the midst of this kingdom montage of productivity that I think Peter's story slows down for. There's one scene that foreshadows a turn that's coming. Some interested seekers approach Jesus, and Peter overhears Jesus say this to them. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So Peter has this embedded into his soul. Whatever you do, don't look back. Forward is the only way in the kingdom. Scene four, failing. All four Gospels turn on a hinge right between kingdom and cross when Jesus stops talking all about the kingdom and begins to incessantly predict his own impending death. Matthew 16 says this, from that time Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Now, Jesus is explaining the bigger picture of his sacrifice and the way his kingdom comes. Peter is correcting the Messiah. No, Jesus, forward is the only way in the kingdom. Don't look back. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then it all reaches a tipping point on the final night of Jesus' life when uh, he's talking all hopeful and gloomy about his death and then Peter memorably speaks up. Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. 
Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Now you probably know the story from here. Jesus is arrested. Peter, thinking the revolution is finally going down, pulls out his sword, cuts off the ear of one of the men who are arresting Jesus. Jesus then heals the very man that Peter's inflicted violence against. The disciples, confused and disoriented, all scatter. But Peter and John, confused and not sure what's happening, follow at a distance, just watching the scenes of what's going on with the rabbi. They eventually get to the trial and they go right into the court hearing. John does at least, but Peter, ashamed and afraid, waits outside. John comes back out looking for Peter, assuming that he's gotten lost at security or something like that. And this is John 18, Peter warming his hands over a charcoal fire, approached by a teenage girl. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I'm not. At all the social pressure of a teenage girl, Peter denies any association with Jesus. There's a scene change. that We flash then to Jesus on the witness stand being questioned. He's being tried without representation. Then they pan back to Peter, still in the courtyard, still warming his hands over that same charcoal fire. He's questioned again, denies Jesus again. He's questioned a third time. This time it's one of the men who was there at the arrest. Didn't I see you there with him? Didn't you cut off someone's ear? He curses defensively in denial of any association with the man he thought he was ready to die with. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. One glance, one moment of eye contact with Jesus across the courtyard and Peter's life comes folding in on itself like a house of cards. Peter, who counted the cost and said, even if everyone walks away, I'm ready to die with you, Jesus. That Peter denies Jesus in his moment of great need and suddenly realizes, I'm a failure. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in this kingdom, right? I've looked back. I'm not fit for the kingdom. In the words of Catherine of Siena, Jesus gave Peter an experimental, or I would say an experiential, knowledge of his own poverty. And we know what this is. Every last one of us knows what this is, this devastating moment of failure. When we suddenly realize I'm not who I want to be, who I mean to be, who I really intend to be, who I promised him or her or myself that I would be this time. I'm still not that person. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Now we got to pause for an intermission from Peter's story here just for a second. Psychologists often talk about lived spirituality versus stated spirituality, which is essentially the psychological phenomenon that all of us live with this gap between what we say we believe and the belief that we actually live. Uh, said another way, there is a gap in the inner life of every human being, uh, the, a gap between the story by which we make sense of the world intellectually and the story that's actually guiding my emotional world. Uh, the gap between lived and stated spirituality is one that is hidden even within the individual person most of the time. We're just happily humming along, uh, assuming that our stated convictions are our real convictions, that, that the creeds that we recite are also the emotional floor that our identity lives on. Uh, even if everyone else turns back, I'm ready to die with you, Jesus. But there are two unavoidable circumstances that expose our lived spirituality, the true story that's informing our actions and our emotions in the world. There are two circumstances that we all face again and again and again where this hidden story that's truly guiding us gets seen and exposed clearly. And they are boredom and crisis. So first, there's boredom. I mean, if you wanna know what you really believe, just pay attention to where you go when you're bored. When you cannot derive your meaning any longer from professional busyness or social busyness or relational demands or productivity of some kind, when you're just idle, where do you go to cure your boredom? Do you indulge? Do you open up the fridge or the pantry or the liquor cabinet? 
Do you busy yourself? Do you reach for your phone and send as many texts as you need to to make some kind of plans? Do you try to be productive? Do you invent tasks or work or finally begin chipping away at that to-do list that ever lives in your head? Do you escape into some form of entertainment and find yourself staring at your preferred screen? You see, boredom shows you your lived spirituality. It shows you what you really believe about yourself. What you really believe makes you valuable or makes the world valuable or makes it worth living at all, uh, about what makes you feel okay, about what identity you can wrap yourself in that makes you feel strong apart from God. But then there's also crisis. John Cotter, a professor of leadership at Harvard Business School, wrote a bestseller called Leading Change in which he argues that if you want to accelerate change in a corporation or a business or a community of any kind, then, uh, or even within an individual, then you're going to need a crisis. In fact, he says that if you're the leader of anything and you want to produce change and change quickly, you can either wait for a crisis or you can manufacture a crisis, but you're going to need a crisis. So just think, uh, for example, about COVID, the crisis that we have all endured and are enduring together. Uh, In February 2020, there was all of this talk about how the world's globalizing and it's creating this one uh, common dominant ideology, at least in the West. And then this crisis called COVID-19 hits and disorients us all. And the next thing we know, we're talking about how the world's polarizing, how there's these two ideologies, uh, socially and political, that are mo- politically that are moving further and further apart, especially in the West. How on earth did the script just flip overnight like that? Crisis. But the same thing can be true in our own inner life. Profound change in an individual always happens alongside crisis. There's the the loss of a loved one or the loss of a job. There's a divorce or a diagnosis. Some crisis comes unexpected and unwelcomed into my story and then that makes me suddenly open to belief or open to doubt. Suddenly question or move or reinvent myself in some way. Every great memoir turns on a crisis or two but it takes a crisis or two to produce change in an individual and twists and turns in a story worth reading. And Peter's story, it turns on a crisis. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. What's the expression on Jesus' face? I mean, Jesus, from the witness stand, in in the midst of all the barking accusations of the priests and the jeers of the crowd, he hears this faint crow of a rooster signaling a new day, and he knows. I mean, he always knew. And so he cuts through the crowd, and he locks eyes with Peter just beyond the gate, waiting outside of the courtroom. What's the expression on Jesus' face as he locks eyes with Peter in this moment? Because how you answer that question will tell you everything you really believe about God. It does not matter what you say you believe. It does not matter what stories you read or what songs you sing or what creeds you recite. The look on Jesus' face in the most infamous moment of failure in all four Gospels will tell you what you really believe about the heart of God. Is it stern? Disappointed? Hurt? Angry? Compassionate? Gracious, merciful? What's the look on his face? And is everything okay out there? (laughs) Look, regardless of what you say you believe, this crisis, if you can find it in yourself, it will show you your lived belief. Boredom and crisis, they reveal even to us what we really believe, and that's not pop psychology, that is the biblical drama. Uh, Peter dropped his nets because Jesus captured his heart, awoke in him this sleepy longing for the most ancient story. We found the Messiah, the one the prophets spoke about, but then somewhere along the way that inspiration wore off and some kind of boredom grew up within him as he walked behind Jesus. And where'd Peter go in his boredom? Back to fishing. But then two and a half years later, Peter was ready to follow Jesus anywhere. He would ne- he's never been this alive. He's never been this renewed. Jesus is worth all of him, even his very life. Even if everyone else turns back, I'm with you to the death. That was his stated belief. And he really meant it. 
But Christus then shined a light on what had been hidden in him all of those three years, the gap that was inside of him between his stated belief and his lived belief. And the crisis of the cross saw words coming from Peter's mouth that he never thought he would say and running where? Back to fishing. Back to that fragile sense of identity and security that I built for myself because the identity that God gave me doesn't feel sure, doesn't feel true, doesn't feel safe anymore. Not now, not anymore. So back to what the ancients call the false self. Back to fishing. The question that lies at the heart of Peter's story is this one. What closes the gap between stated and lived spirituality? I mean, boredom and crisis expose the tension of faith, that what I say I believe and what I actually live in my belief is, is ever different. It exposes this gap that I can't really seem to just transfer belief from my head down into my heart, that, that what I speak with my mouth and what lives in my bones are not always one and the same. The most urgent need of your life is not another insight. It's to trust what you already believe. So why is it that no matter how many times I sing, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, I still feel like God is disappointed or angry or rolling his eyes at me when I fall back into that same old sin pattern I can't seem to escape? And why is it that I can say all the things about grace and really mean them, but then I still live like performance or merit is at the end of the day where my worth lies? And why is it that I can be comforted in this room by the creator who knit me together in my mother's womb, but then I obsess over my calorie count and my body image every second I'm outside of this room? And why is it that I can resonate with the God who gives me a new name and then live like my boyfriend or my boss or my mother or my spouse holds the ultimate opinion over me and and authority in what my worth is? And why is it that no matter how many times I taste bread and wine around the communion table with my community, I never quite feel like I'm welcome at Jesus' table just as I am without cleaning myself up first? You see, the most urgent need of my life and your life is not another insight. It is to trust what you already believe. But how? How does that happen? How do I address that urgent need? Or how do I allow God to address it? How do I trust with my daily life what I already believe? And what is the pathway between knowledge in my head to spiritual knowledge that lives in my heart? Well, we have to move from belief to knowledge. You see, in English, we typically understand the word belief to be uh, deeper and more personal than knowledge, right? Knowledge is intellectual. It's information that we hold in our heads, but belief is this gut-level conviction. Knowledge is the language of the head, but belief is the language of the heart. That's the English understanding of the two, but it's not the ancient Hebrew understanding. The ancient Hebrew understanding of the word knowledge comes from the word yada, and it is a relational or an experiential knowledge. This is why again and again in the Old Testament, no is used as a euphemism for sex. Then Adam knew Eve. That's not talking about learning new information about Eve from a book. It is relational and experiential. It's the most intimate kind of knowledge. You see, in the Hebrew understanding, until you had personal, relational, experiential evidence, all you had was theory. And that's called belief. So most of us believe it's a bad idea to touch a hot stove, but some people know it's a bad idea to touch a hot stove. How? Because they've done it. They have relational, experiential knowledge with touching a hot stove, and that is yada. So we use this Hebrew understanding of knowledge occasionally in the English language when we speak of knowledge that lives in our five senses, not in our thinking. When we say things like, oh, she's just got a feel for the game or he has a touch for the saxophone, or who designed this place? They've got great taste, right? We're speaking about knowledge that is expressed through our body, through our five senses, not just held in our imagination. We're speaking of a kind of knowing that has to be acquired from experience and not by insight, a kind of knowledge that books can't help us with, but experience can, a kind of knowing that involves the intellect, but demands the experience. So let me bring this a little bit closer. If you were to say to me, Tyler, how do you know your wife loves you? I would not recite our wedding vows to you. I would start telling you about all the ways that our relationship works. 
and all the little ways that she chooses my company and all the times that she stuck with me and forgiven me when I was ridiculous or difficult or wrong or lost and all the occasions that she's been a rock of support to me and all the fun evenings together of laughter and the meals shared and the enjoyable moments of doing nothing together and the occasional evening of biblical knowing. (laughs) That's how I know there's relational, experiential knowledge. That's how I know. You see, all the way back at the beginning of John's gospel, there's this cryptic reference Jesus makes to this distinction between belief and knowledge. This is John chapter two. Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. Now, the the English believed here is the ancient Greek pistuo. Can you say that? But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Now, the English entrust is the Greek pistuo. Can you say that? Less enthusiasm the second time. Understandable. (laughs) Because it's the same word. You see, a literal translation of this verse would read, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not believe himself to them. You see, he's saying there were many who believed in Jesus, but not in a way that allowed Jesus to entrust himself relationally to them. There's a way to believe in Jesus intellectually that stops short of entrusting yourself to him relationally. There's a way to believe that stops short of knowing. And it's telling that John places this cryptic reference of Jesus immediately before his midnight encounter with Nicodemus. Let me just read John's gospel to you. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That's the very next verse. See, he's saying there's a way to believe in your head but never in your heart. There's a way to recite the creeds, pray the prayers, and sing all the songs but never experience the relational gift that rewires you from the inside out. Here's a picture of it. There was this guy named Nicodemus. You see, the Hebrew mind distinguishes belief and knowledge. Belief can be purely intellectual, but spiritual knowledge requires a link between belief and action. Until what is in your head has been experienced and embodied, it's just passive rumor that is powerless to shape you. It's powerless to heal your past, powerless to free your true self, powerless to give you forgiveness at the gut level, powerless to renew your mind in the language of Romans. At one end of John's gospel, we've got Nicodemus, a picture of believing doctrinally but not relationally. At the opposite end, though, we have a picture of Peter walking this inner journey from belief to knowledge. And nearly the whole of John's gospel is juxtaposed between these two bookends. That belief is buying into theory, but knowledge is to personally, vulnerably, experientially trust the theory that you already believe. And that brings us to scene five, knowing. Three days later when the resurrection rumors start swirling, there's hope and excitement for everyone Everyone except for Peter. Peter's in a unique position here. I mean, there's definitely excitement, but there's also anxiety. Think about this. The last time Peter saw Jesus, he was locking eyes with him across a courtyard in his moment of deep shame. So does he want the resurrection to be true? Of course he does. Does he want to see Jesus again? I imagine he does. Does he have some explaining to do? He absolutely does. (laughs) Right? He's anxiously aware of that fact. Mark 16 says that an angel appeared to Mary at the tomb with this message. Now go and give this message to his disciples, especially Peter. (laughs) Even heaven seems to know that there's a confrontation (laughs) awaiting one guy in particular. So here's the story. Jesus is pursuing Peter again because Peter's gone back to fishing again. And that's where Jesus finds him, back to fishing where he always retreats to. This is John 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Now this is the same sea where Jesus called Peter at first. This is the place that he dropped his nets. It happened this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, which is probably why he went by Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Does that sound familiar? It should. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. Now this is the same beach where Jesus taught from Peter's boat. 
This is the place that, that he told him to, to put out into the deep and drop his nets on the other side. This is the place where Peter said yes to Jesus once and for all, where he fell down at his knees and said, let me be your disciple without even any invitation. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. It's a good thing Peter became a preacher because this brother is struggling with fishing. There are two instances in the whole of the Bible where Peter's actively fishing. Both times he caught nothing. He said, throw your nets on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. That's the same miracle on the same sea from the same beach that Jesus performed to prove to Peter that he would provide. This is the recreation of Peter's spiritual highlight reel. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. Now some romanticize this moment like, oh, Peter's so desiring to be with Jesus, he can't even wait to row the boat in. But I've got a more practical take on this moment. That Peter's thinking, oh no. I've got to get to him before all these other guys get there because they're all in for a reunion with the resurrected Messiah, but I'm in for a confrontation. I've got some explaining to do. I need a private moment to hash things out before everyone else catches up. Is Jesus angry? Is he hurt? How is he feeling? Because the last time we were making eye contact, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning, I'm sorry, a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Now, a charcoal fire is one of the most distinct smells on the planet. If you smell a charcoal grill burning, it will just take you to summertime, right? Psychologically speaking, smell is, of all the five senses, the one most directly connected to your memory. That's why your grandmother's house has a smell that pulls you back to childhood. It's why uh, you will tear up if you smell your late mother's old perfume. It's because smell, psychologically speaking, has a way to pull you into your memory in a way that seeing an old photo or even hearing an old song is powerless to do. And charcoal is a smell. And the last time Peter smelled it, he was warming his hands over a charcoal fire, denying Jesus. Jesus has set a scene to take Peter back into his moment of greatest shame, back to meeting eyes in that courtyard as the rooster crowed. He's not talking about it or even reminding Peter of it. He is experientially pulling that memory to the forefront of Peter's consciousness. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. That's exactly what he did at the feeding of the 5,000. Another miracle of provision. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? It's the question Jesus poses to John. Now, the, the question is, what are these? What is the other love he's measuring Peter's love for him against? Well, some people think it's the love of the other disciples. Like he's saying, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than John and Nathaniel and Thomas slash Didymus and the other guys? But there's a number of problems with that interpretation. Uh, another interpretation, one that is, in my opinion, much more likely is that Jesus is talking about the fish. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these, than the fish you've just caught? Do you love me more than the identity that you keep retreating back to? Do you love me more than the self that you've made and the perception uh, that you find safety within? Do you love me more than the identity that you keep withdrawing and wrapping yourself up in to feel okay instead of running to me in the midst of your pain and your disappointment and your shame? You see, Peter retreats back to fishing. That's the pattern. It's the fruit of the tree. Do you love me? That's Jesus' way of turning Peter's attention from the fruit to the root within him. Jesus has always seen Peter as he truly is. That early morning of denial in the courtyard, the only person who was surprised was Peter, not Jesus. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. 
Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Notice what Jesus is calling him, Simon. That's the name that he was given by his earthly father, not his heavenly father. That's the identity of his own creation. It is the false self, to again borrow the language of the ancients. And Jesus is not creating Peter's shame here. He's just revealing it, revealing it so he can heal it. Rewind in the story with me back to the final night of Jesus' life. Just before predicting Peter's denial, Jesus says something really interesting. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. You see, Jesus knew that Peter's crisis was coming. He knew that denial was in his heart, that failure was in his future. Knew that the fight of his life would be seeing himself as he really is. Uh, seeing what Jesus always knew was in him, that the fight of Peter's life would be seeing his true self, not his idealized self, and still knowing himself as the beloved of God. And so Jesus prayed for Peter, but Jesus did not pray that Peter wouldn't deny him. He doesn't pray, Peter, I've prayed that you'd have the strength to take the cross right next to me. He says, I've prayed for you, Peter, that when you see your naked self, When you see yourself as weak as I've always seen you, I've prayed that the shame won't crush you and that when you've turned back, you'd strengthen your brothers. He prayed, Father, when Peter's confronted, not by his idealized self, but by his real self, would you give him the conviction to believe, to really believe right there in the muck of his shame that he is not defined by his greatest moment of shame or by the idealized kingdom hero that he thought he was, but but that he's defined by me, by the name that I gave him, the identity that I called him, Cephas, Petros, Rock. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Three denials around a charcoal fire. Three questions around a charcoal fire. Jesus recreates Peter's most miraculous moment and his most heartbreaking moment in a single scene right there on the beach together. And Jesus creates this entire scene also that Peter can be reinstated. Three questions for three denials. Each one of them, Jesus follows by commissioning Peter again. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter, you've seen yourself as I've always seen you and you're still the rock I want to build the church on. Peter, can you bear to believe me when I say that this is who you really are? And this teaches us so much about the heart of God. That in a resurrected body, when he's able to appear anywhere and do anything, how does Jesus choose to spend his time? By carefully creating the exact scene needed to restore the faith of just one of his ashamed followers. That tells you everything you need to know about the heart of God. You see, here's what happened on that beach. Jesus just led Peter from belief to knowledge. Peter always believed in the grace of God. He always believed in a God of mercy. He'd seen him pour it out on person after person after person, and he'd gotten to help him do it. But right here, in the midst of his own shame, when the mercy and grace of God met him in his darkest hour, this is when he knew the grace of God. Frederick Buechner writes, for what we need to know, of course, is not just that God exists, Not just that beyond the steely brightness of the stars there is a cosmic intelligence of some kind that keeps the whole show going, but that there is a God right here in the thick of our day-to-day lives who may not be writing messages about himself in the stars, but in one way or another is trying to get messages through our blindness as we move around down here knee-deep in the fragrant muck and misery and marvel of the world. It is not objective proof of God's existence that we want, but the experience of God's presence. That is the miracle we are really after. And that is also, I think, the miracle we really get. You see, it's not enough just to believe in the accepting love of God. We have to let God love us exactly as we are, naked and unashamed in the language of Genesis. And Peter had some highlights. I mean, he did turn out to be a phenomenal preacher and an unshakable leader and a brave warrior, but Peter's lasting legacy is God's grace, not his competence. His legacy's grace. The most commonly known story about the life of Peter is his denial of Jesus in his moment of great need. 
In the midst of a life of such highlight, of so much triumph, it's his failure, not his triumph. It's his public denial, not his, his public heroism that gave us the clearest revelation of the heart of God. You see, what we know today most profoundly about God from the life of Peter did not come from his competence. It came from his failure. And in fact, what Peter knew and knows most profoundly about the heart of God came not from his competence, but from his failure. Peter's great contribution to the kingdom was this. When he realized he was naked, Peter did not cover up and hide. He ran to Jesus. And so in the life of Peter, the power of resurrection repairs the trauma of the garden. And years later, Peter writes a letter to the church, and he includes this famous line, love covers over a multitude of sins. Peter would have believed that for so long before he knew it personally. It would have lived in his mind for so long before it lived in his bones. But here, late in life, on the other side of these personal experiences of grace, a belief has become knowledge. So we'll land here today. There's an ancient form of Japanese art called kintsugi in which only two materials are used. There's broken, damaged pieces of pottery, and there's gold. Kintsugi is a form of art where you take something that's broken and then you make it whole again by pouring gold into all the cracks. The Japanese artists who started this believed that when something suffered damage, it then carries a history and a story that makes it more beautiful than if it had never been damaged in the first place. And so they take broken things with the past and they make them more beautiful than they were before they were broken. And that's the kind of artist God is. He's one who picks up our broken pieces, the mess we've made out of the lies we've believed and makes something beautiful out of our brokenness, pours gold into every crack and makes us whole. Now most people throw out a broken vase, but these artists see these broken pieces as treasure. They meticulously collect every last piece. The ugliest parts of ourselves, the parts we want to throw out, God sees as redeemable. And he does his best work in the mess. He's that kind of artist. You see, God only works with broken vessels. And when you reflect on that as an idea, uh, when you believe it, it's poetic and it's beautiful, but when you experience that personally, when you yada it, when you know it, it's far more than poetry. It's transformation. The great temptation of the spiritual life is to assume that I'm gonna be the first person who ever does it up and to the right. The great invitation of the spiritual life is to believe that you too might one day have a legacy of grace. That God is a good enough artist and that redemption runs deep enough and broad enough to repurpose the moments of your story that you'd prefer to edit or erase altogether. The, the ones that sting to even think about the utter failures and turn those into the moments that most completely reveal his grace and most profoundly build his kingdom. You don't need any more insights. You've got enough insights to last you 300 years. The most urgent need of your life, beloved, is to trust what you already believe.